From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. On Pain, our series about chronic pain continues with someone who's still searching for relief. Naomi Binkley McDonald had to muster up the courage to, as she describes it, pull back the band-aids. I hid my journey with pain and this invisible illness for seven years, primarily because I did have a business and we become friends with a lot of the people that we work with and I didn't want them to feel sorry for me and not want to work with us. How she juggles the business with not being able to get out of bed some days. Also, the guilt she feels spending so much money on medical visits and the discrimination women often face in health care. Plus, we'll talk hope. Even after a decade without concrete answers, she still has it. We are so grateful to our members who choose to be a part of CPR's community of support. Your gifts strengthen the foundation for fact-based journalism and music exploration in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The first time I spoke with Naomi Binkley McDonald of Golden, it was just after 11 in the morning and she was still in bed working. The TV news producer turned freelancer was immobilized. The pain is really exclusive to my upper arms and my upper legs. It feels like the kind of pain where you've walked up, you know, way too many flights of stairs and it burns like that lactic acid pain. And then I start to shake and tremor and cramp up. You know, it used to be really triggered by movement. Now it's just all the time and and it feels just like someone is taking two forks and shredding my muscles. Binkley McDonald, who's 48, used to play softball and remembers the pain of exercise, what she calls earned pain, good pain. And this is not it, she says. Today, in our series On Pain, the story of someone who's still searching for relief and even just a diagnosis to explain the pain. Naomi, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for the opportunity. I wonder if you've been able to get out of bed yet today. Ooh, today. I've taken a shower today, so that's a a victory. Um, But I am doing this interview from bed uh, with my heating pads on my back, so I'm comfortable. Today is a brutal day with the cold, so those are never easy days on my muscles. We're recording this as it snows outside, and so it sounds like the cold exacerbates your pain. It does. In the cold, my muscles will tighten, which causes them to cramp and spasm. So I have these spasms that look almost like a leg seizure that are really uncomfortable and make mobility very challenging. And cold is definitely something that makes the pain worse. So if I were with you right now, we're doing this distanced, would I see like the shaking of your limbs then? And right now they're more tremory, so I'm kind of shaking more inside and a little bit on the outside as well. Mm. But when I do get the muscle spasms, it's dramatic and it's what tends to get the medical community's attention or my, my tremors, even though my pain is my primary symptom. It sounds like you've had to tell physicians, don't look over there, look over here. <laughs> right, right. This journey starts a decade ago at a shopping mall. Will you set the scene for us? Yeah, absolutely. So in 2012, um, I was doing something for my business. I've got a video production company and I noticed that I was feeling worn out. 
I chalked it up for about six months to being the mom of two young girls and having a small business. But then, yeah, I was at a, a mall with my mom and we got to the bottom of a flight of stairs and I just started crying. And I knew that I could not easily get up those stairs. Stairs now are practically impossible for me, but that definitely inspired me to go see a doctor uh, and start to pursue getting some treatment and a proper diagnosis. Okay, so you've had a slew of diagnoses. I'm going to list some of them. Something called stiff person syndrome, mast cell activation disorder, fibromyalgia is on the list? Yes, that was my initial diagnosis. Your compromised immune system also means that you got COVID. And yet, no single diagnosis seems to capture the totality of your experience. Nothing quite fits medically like a glove. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So I did actively treat fibromyalgia for many years. I took the medications. I did physical therapy. I did hypnotherapy, acupuncture, you name it. So I embraced that diagnosis. But as the treatments weren't doing anything, I started to research more what the symptoms of fibromyalgia were, and they really didn't align. Like it doesn't hurt to touch my muscles. I don't have trigger points, things of that nature. So then I was diagnosed many years later with stiff person syndrome, which is an unusual, it's a one in a million diagnosis. Um, That came back through some blood work and then of course clinical, you know, seeing my my symptoms. Uh, Later I was told, nope, you don't have that. Regardless, I did so many of the treatments for stiff person syndrome and didn't respond. So that certainly made that diagnosis one that we questioned then as well. But yeah, I think the journey of trying to find the source of the pain is so exhausting on every single level. But my gut really tells me that there's something that we can identify. We just have to look deep and do the discovery. And then then maybe there's some sort of treatment and I can get some relief and get some life back. I hear hope in that. I also hear a third source of exhaustion. So you've talked about the muscle exhaustion, the exhaustion of pain, and then the exhaustion of searching. How isolating is it not having a community of people to turn to who are going through quite the same thing? Oh, you feel so alone because in so many medical conditions with diagnoses, you have a community to turn to. So if you have a blood cancer, for instance, or something, you know, multiple sclerosis or something, there's help out there just by knowing what it is that you have. So without knowing, there's no group that I can really turn to for support and what worked for you and what didn't work for you. So you do feel alone in that, but you also feel alone in the searching itself, because I do have people who have questioned you know, what does it matter? I I even had a physician once say, if it's not going to kill you, what does it matter? Uh, And I, you know, I questioned that. How could you know if it's something that we don't know the exact diagnosis of, but really without pinpointing the cause of this pain, I, I, I just am not getting relief anywhere. And I have been equally assertive about trying different treatments, both, you know, holistic treatments, mind body treatments, equine therapy, cupping, you know, all of it, talking to the pain and saying, thank you for the pain signal, but it's not necessary. That was back when I thought I had fibromyalgia and nothing responds. So the questioning Mm. continues for me. Cupping is a kind of suction uh, with these, I don't know, they look like little shot glasses. And then equine therapy. So you've tried riding horses as a way to get through this. 
Um, in a way, you have created your own community with a blog about your journey with pain. I did, yeah. I hid my journey with pain and this invisible illness for seven years, primarily because I did have a business and we become friends with a lot of the people that we work with and I didn't want them to feel sorry for me and not want to work with us. Uh, but it came to the point where I needed, I chose to use a mobility scooter for distance because I exert so much of my energy just getting from place to place that then I wouldn't have any energy to do my work or do whatever it was that I needed to do in that place. Uh, so I had to pull back the band-aids and put the raw me out there and start to talk about my condition and advocate for myself and ask if there are stairs at a location that we're going to or ask for a stool to sit on at an event. And in doing so, I realized that so many people are struggling in silence out there. Hmm. People who would come to me and say, you know, I deal with this mental health condition or I'm dealing with chronic pain or an illness that nobody knows about. Gosh, listening to you there, I realize how much shame I have when I'm sick, Naomi. Mm -hmm. Uh, now, this is, you know, not a therapy session for me, but I wonder if hearing that uh, triggers something in you. If I feel shame, yeah. I feel shame all the time, all the time. Uh, you know, I feel shame because I feel like a burden. Uh, particularly to my husband, which he would never, he doesn't treat me that way. He is my greatest champion and caregiver, but I want to be a partner and it saddens me and grieves me that our children don't know the person that I used to be before all of this happened um, because I was active. I was a competitive softball player growing up. I hiked, I inline skated, you know, I did great things and uh, now I just can't. So there's shame there, but there's also, um, yeah, a lot of grief. And I don't want people to ever think that what they're going through is negated by what I'm going through because the pain is so intense. So I know sometimes, you know, my husband gets a cold or something and he apologizes to me. Oh, I shouldn't complain about this. And I'm I'm like, you should. It's your experience. Yeah, I have a friend who says don't compare pain. Pain's hard to compare. Oh, you know? It is. I know that some of your, maybe the word is guilt in this case, um, is around the money because the searching is so expensive, even with insurance, right? Well, I'm a small business owner, and so we have a high deductible plan, and I consistently meet the deductible, and a lot of times, most years, last year, and I'm already off to a good start this year, meet the out-of-pocket uh, so the cost is extraordinary. Um, last year, I did a program in Utah where it was three weeks of trying to treat pain. And it was a straight out of the pocket investment. And it took all of our savings. And, you know, it was kind of for me a last hope kind of thing. And, you know, when you make that investment of time and money and burden on your family of keeping things going when you're gone and then you come back and nothing has changed, it's devastating. Emotionally and economically, I gather. Both, yeah. yeah. I mean, there are things that I'd like to be doing that we don't we don't vacation. We have to scrimp and save, and it's because of my medical costs, which that that's sad. It's sad for my children in particular and my husband. Do you ask the question, why me? And if so, what answer do you come up with? I will say that there have been some very dark nights of the soul. And yes, I've questioned why me? What did I do to deserve this? All the things that you ask. I've had a crisis of faith, but I've also 
realize that there are gifts in this that I wouldn't have had otherwise. I think it's opened new chambers in my heart to be able to relate to other people who are going through challenging experiences and often alone. I mean, I can't imagine, um, I'm pretty driven and <laughs> I'm persistent. And, you know, I can't imagine advocating for myself if I didn't have my state of mind and my, you know, experience and history and background and whatnot. So I think about the people out there who can't navigate the medical system. Mm. It's a bear. I hear you acknowledging uh, some of perhaps your privilege in this searching and the support you have and the means you have. This is a difficult line of questioning, but research shows that chronic pain conditions are associated with an elevated risk for suicide. And uh, by the way, if anyone listening is struggling with those kinds of thoughts, someone's standing by to help if you text TALK to 38255, TALK to 38255. Uh, But Naomi, has the pain made you question life itself? You said it's pretty dark nights of the soul, I think. It has absolutely made me question life itself. Um, I've struggled with suicidal ideation in the past. I am not suicidal now. But the worst times are when I'm at the end of a line of hope and there's no next step. And that's when I start to get very desperate and I feel dark. But yeah, I've struggled with those thoughts in the past because, you know, to me, it would be relief, right, from the physical horrors of of having this pain, which chronically are on, you know, a level of six, seven, you know, I mean, I'm cold sweating at night and shaking and taking anti-nausea medication because the pain makes me so sick. So yeah, looking for relief from that has been something that has crossed my mind, but I I would not do that to my, my loved ones. And two, I think that the relief could come with a solution, with a proper diagnosis and with proper treatment. And that, that I hope maybe someone hears my story and there is a solution out there and it's just obvious to someone, but not, hasn't been so far in this journey. I was reading a piece from Harvard Medical School about how women's pain is treated differently from men's. Just a few highlights from the research in healthcare: Women in pain are more likely than men to be prescribed sedatives rather than pain medication. Women wait longer in the ER for painkillers when they have acute abdominal pain. The disparity can also be deadly. Women are seven times more likely than men to be misdiagnosed and discharged in the middle of having a heart attack. Does any of that resonate with your own experience, Naomi? That breaks my heart. It just really breaks my heart. It breaks my heart for women out there who, like I said, I I have a pretty strong voice and I'm very persistent in advocating for myself. But I've had issues with providers who lack compassion uh, and have, have said things that are just, you know, I, I don't think that you would say that to someone who's struggling. Like what? Oh, like pick a doctor and stick with one. Uh, like the doctor who told me that if this pain isn't going to kill me, why keep searching? But then again, you know, you raise the issue of people in pain looking for relief by having their life end. And I think that it is a crisis that's extremely serious when we have people in pain who don't have solutions, who are overlooked by the medical community or not taken as seriously as their male counterparts. I, that to me is is a real heartbreak. 
this search has led you to genetic testing. Your family physician recommended that, right? What's the hope there? Well, the hope is either to rule in or rule out. So uh, I'm getting some genetic testing literally as we speak, as well as some very long chain fatty acid testing to look for metabolic type issues. So again, it's it's exhausting every every avenue to see if we can identify what's going on. It does feel to me um, a bit like a metabolic storage type issue because if I if I'm run down, I'm tired, I'm which I'm always tired. If I'm hungry, it's even worse. The pain is even more intense and my spasms get worse. My muscles feel really weak to even hold up my head can be challenging when I'm in that state. So I don't know. I don't know what the results of those tests are, but again, we're looking at every avenue. Do you worry that somehow the pain will be passed on to your kids? Oh, all the time. All the time I worry. And that's part of the reason I'm doing some of this genetic testing. Mm. Uh, my youngest daughter has some spasming, it looks like, in her leg, especially when she gets very anxious. And so I worry. I, and plus just them seeing, you know, I mean, children learn through see, observing their parents. And um, I hope that they see a mother who's strong and uh, who continues to try to push through in large part because of them. But I hope that, you know, they don't ever have to endure this kind of pain. Before we go, what do you think people, be it doctors or, or anyone else, misunderstand about chronic pain? Well, I do know that there's research about mind-body connection. And so that you'll hear the phrase, it's in your head. And I think that that's partially true, that there are neural pathways that, that will cause pain to be exasperated. Um, but I do believe there's a reason. I think that living in pain, as you mentioned, there's there's shame, there's guilt, there are all of these negative emotions as well. But if we can find the light and the community by speaking out and being together and being empathetic, learning from each other's experiences, that there's hope. I haven't given up hope quite yet. So um, I'm hopeful that there will be a day that I'm pain-free that maybe one day I can uh, throw out the first pitch at a Rockies game or something incredible like that. So I hope that my journey has a happy ending. We've planted the seed to the Rockies here. And <laughs> I, I hear once again how much you crave community and how important that's been for you. Naomi, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Ryan, thank you for drawing attention to this. I really appreciate the time. That is Naomi Binkley McDonald of Golden. Her blog is called Pain and Purpose. She describes herself as a chronic pain warrior, mama bear, entrepreneur, and video producer. We spoke as part of our series on pain, which continues next week. We'll meet a man who, like Binkley McDonald, has been on a years-long search for relief, in his case, from back pain, Opioids help, but the national crackdown has made it hard, sometimes humiliating, to convince doctors to prescribe them. Living through two years of a pandemic is difficult at any age, but for high schoolers, the loss has been acute. The isolation and the absence of social activities weigh heavily. One 16-year-old got COVID when schools shuttered in March 2020, then again at the crest of the Omicron wave over Christmas. 
In quarantine, he wrote a song that captures these past two years. I'm Levi Randolph, and I'm 16 years old. I live in Indian Hills, Colorado. It's sort of up by Morrison and Evergreen, that area. The song is called Omicron Standard Time, OST, and it's just kind of like how time feels when you have COVID. I get up, I go down every day, the same old sound. Wish that I could run from the here and now. It becomes sort of rhythmic, like you're getting up, you're just doing school and then you're doing your homework and going to bed. Being isolated, it, it was so hard. It was really sad, yeah, to be alone. I just wanted something to remember these days. All these people running desperate to save. And so we were like, let's write a song about it. You know, let's get our emotions out there into this work so that we don't have to hold it in anymore. Cause I just need a break. I just need time. They said 10 days. So it was just like, oh, they said 10 days, you know, that I had to be alone, but it turned out it was two years, you know. I can't take much more. I want my life to be what it was before. I feel high, I feel low. I feel like it's a really good perspective for adults to see how kids my age are feeling in this whole situation. Where my friends, where my mates, then one day Being alone has kind of, like, you don't know what's, what's right or wrong because you don't have anyone else's opinions. You're just kind of shooting in the dark for certain things. With masks on and all this um, quarantining and everything, it's really difficult to understand people's emotions towards you. And so a lot of the time you just try to change who you are to be more suited to what you think people will like. All these people yelling, desperate to save face. Why do I keep crying? Why is everybody lying? So as a kid, you're watching this, all this fighting, and you're like, just, it doesn't matter, you know? It's like, we all should just be trying to love each other and get through this together, rather than be against each other on different opinions on what is right. Hold on to your loved ones Cause they'll be there when it's all But I've also experienced a different side of kind of loss that I've never felt before. The thought that I couldn't see anyone other than my family. And it's like, before COVID, I never would have dreamed that, like, or thought that I would be so isolated from the rest of the world. So I definitely have gained a sense of loss and what's that like, and I think I can appreciate things a little better. It feels like the year didn't exist. Like my freshman year, like I'll look back on it and be like, when did that happen? And, and it's like that happened that year where I was at home. The And the music production side, I've definitely learned something. This entire two years, I've learned how to produce music, and that's the song that you heard. I just need time. Give back my life. They said ten days. And everything will be 
16-year-old Levi Randolph of Indian Hills. After high school, Levi hopes to study film and music production or musical theater. This story was produced by our education reporter, Jenny Brundine. And Colorado Matters continues into this next half hour with Mesa County's district attorney and his effort to rise above the political divide. I'm Ryan Warner. You're at CPR News and KRCC. What does it take to recover from life's big challenges? And how can others learn from one person's adversity? Season 3 of CPR's Back From Broken is out now, a podcast about recovery everywhere you get your podcasts. Sponsored in part by the University of Colorado and Schutz Medical Campus. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Mesa County District Attorney Dan Rubenstein is at the epicenter of the election fraud case in his county. Clerk and recorder Tina Peters allegedly brought an unauthorized person into an update of voting machines. Secure passwords and hard drives were published online. Mesa County's DA sat down with CPR's Benta Berkland to discuss the latest with the case and what might come next. Your office has certainly been in the news a lot, and you recently charged Mesa County's clerk and recorder, Tina Peters, with 10 counts related to an election security breach in her office that happened last summer. Her deputy clerk, Belinda Nisley, also faces criminal charges. And first question here, could we see more charges Certainly, this investigation is ongoing. We knew that our community has been very patient with us as we uh, tried to get through the vast amount of information we've collected, but we haven't collected everything. One of the main things we're still waiting for is we've seized several computers and cell phones uh, at times that we know that uh, both Miss Nisley and Miss Peters had attorneys. And so we have a filter team that is making sure that when we get that information, we don't get any privileged information. But a lot of the communications between the various uh, participants in this uh, are on those devices, and that could lead to more charges possibly for them as well as for others. And the FBI and federal authorities are conducting a parallel investigation. Any idea when we may see something there? So I'm trying to do my best to not speak on behalf of the federal authorities. Yes, that's correct. We are doing a parallel investigation with them. Uh, They're the ones who are actually doing the filtering of those devices, uh, and we will receive that information from them. Uh, As far as timing, I don't know specifically what the timing is for theirs. I'm trying to focus the state charges on issues that are really of state concern. Uh, the offenses that uh, were in the indictment on Miss Peters and Miss Nisley relate to things that occurred in the building, probably about 200 yards from my office, actually, is, is the clerk and recorder's office. There were a lot of things in this case that occurred in other states. For example, after these images were taken, several participants appeared at a forum in South Dakota. The images and the passcodes were put on the Internet, and those really are more of federal concern. And so we're trying to separate out as far as charges and also 
participants, which are appropriate for state court versus federal court. You had mentioned the images of the voting machine hard drives and the passwords. They were captured. This was during the annual system update of the voting machines, and a handful of people were in the room when that happened. And Peters introduced a man named Gerald Wood to people there. She said, this person is Gerald Wood. And this is what really stood out to me and I think a lot of other people when we were reading the indictment that this person was not, in fact, Gerald Wood, but someone else. Uh, what, what's going on there? I don't really want to comment too much on the facts of a pending prosecution. It was in the indictment that Gerald Wood was not the person in the room. I've been asked by quite a few people who was the person in the room. Uh, That is somebody that we think we've identified and we believe that when the investigation is complete, we will have identified. And if so, that person potentially will face charges. Charges are certainly possible. We need to make sure, obviously, that whoever that person was, was aware what they were doing was criminal. We also have to decide whether or not that was something that is really more of federal concern or of state concern. Can you reflect on the politics of all of this? Since you are a Republican and Tina Peters has accused you of being a never Trumper who's essentially out to get her for being conservative. Then we had the state GOP party kind of criticize Peters for attacking a Republican district attorney. And then, of course, the Democratic Secretary of State, Jenna Griswold, has been very vocal on this at the forefront of it. So a lot of dynamics going on there. There certainly is a lot of political rhetoric going on uh, on both sides. My constituents certainly know that I am not somebody who's politically motivated on anything. I've been accused of having this grand jury investigation uh, be an effort to sway pending elections. Uh, I, I find that accusation to be completely silly because the grand jury investigation started before Miss Peters announced actually first that she was going to run for clerk. The grand jury investigation had already begun, and then later she switched from clerk to secretary of state, but all this predated any of that. One of the primary reasons why I asked a grand jury to make the probable cause determination rather than me doing so myself was to make sure that it was a group of randomly selected citizens. The same citizens that elected Tina Peters were the citizens that uh, determined that there was probable cause she committed these offenses. What kind of attention has this brought to you and your staff? It's been a challenge for us to focus on our primary mission of keeping Mesa County safe. It's been quite a distraction and obviously, as, as you mentioned, has, has made national headlines. Uh, we are really just trying to do our jobs and doing our jobs means holding people accountable for crimes they commit. I will remind everybody at this point, Ms. Peters and Ms. Nisley are presumed innocent. A grand jury indictment are allegations, not not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. There is a process that we have to go through. We're going to do that, and we're going to do that fairly like we do in all cases. But we really would love to get past this, get this uh, case completed, and get back to our, our primary mission. After the indictment, did you start hearing from more people in the community when you're out and about? And what were people's reactions? Locally, there was definitely a sense of relief that the investigation had gone forward. You know, everybody was frustrated. Our local newspaper was covering it extensively. And there's just a lot going on. There's more than just the criminal case going. There's civil cases to remove Miss Peters from overseeing the elections. There's a uh, obstruction charge for when my investigators were trying to serve a search warrant on her. And so it just it kept getting into the news and people were looking for answers. And so there was, I think, a sense of relief. I hope people don't see this as this is over. This is just the beginning. As I mentioned, these are merely allegations at this point. The process has to play out. But I think people were at least hopeful that this is moving to the next step.
What do you think the national implications are of this? I always wonder in criminal offenses if if the people who are reading the newspaper are deterred at all. Uh, and I suspect most of our criminal population is not deterred by reading the newspaper, watching the news, and seeing what a sentence uh, gets. I think what this case is about is that there's a process to challenge elections, and that process can involve a lawful way to go about it. Uh, hopefully the message is that uh, if we believe that an unlawful method was used and should not have been, that that's not acceptable. And hopefully the other election officials around the country will go to the courts and challenge things in the courts. And that's that's the appropriate place to do this. And that is Mesa County District Attorney Dan Rubenstein speaking with CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland. A national monument to the global war on terror is closer to reality in Washington, D.C. To mark its progress, Congress members joined veterans and Gold Star family members last week on the National Mall. Colorado's Jason Crow, a vocal advocate for the memorial, told the crowd the mall is the right place to honor those who lost their lives in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Because what this reserve, what this mall has proven generation after generation is that place has a healing power. CPR's Caitlin Kim reports that for the veterans and families who've worked on this project for years, it's a bittersweet moment. It's still dark out when about two dozen veterans, Gold Star families and officials gather at the base of the Lincoln Memorial. Planes fly overhead. There's a fine mist blanketing the National Mall, but no one seems to mind. They're here to celebrate. The bill giving the Global War on Terrorism Memorial a place on the National Mall has been signed into law. A lot of us put a lot of hours into making calls and writing letters and, you know, just telling them why we feel like this is important. That's Shauna Arachaga. It was like a full-time job I didn't get paid for, so this memorial is going to be my payment, I guess. She says this with a smile. The work was worth it. Her husband was killed in action in Afghanistan during his fourth deployment. For her, this memorial is all the more meaningful because her husband, who was originally from Cuba, received his U.S. citizenship during his third deployment, that time in Iraq. To be the family of an immigrant who volunteered for a country he didn't come from and to know that he's going to be honored here, it makes, I don't know, it makes me happy. Their son, Alston, had the honor of carrying the U.S. flag at the start of the ruck, what they described as a brisk walk with a heavy pack, a tribute to the service members. Tabitha Farmer's kids carried the flag at the end of it, wrapping up near the U.S. Capitol. She's here so future generations will know the sacrifices this military generation made. It's for my kids, not for me. And it's for them to show their kids. Her seven-year-old twins are having fun, marching ahead with Senator Joni Ernst, while her two teens stick with her. Her husband was killed in action in 2019. Farmer says he was a Green Beret, and they're known for keeping quiet about what they do. But... This is something that we need to be loud about, and I think my husband would be extremely proud, especially of my children. Um, I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional. <laughs> um, because he he loved our country so much, and he always put everyone before him. And I know he would just be extremely proud of everybody's efforts. Marching nearby is Bob Sandry. He's a gold star father. 
His son was a combat medic with the 82nd Airborne. On Sunday, it will be the 18th anniversary of his death. He's buried across the river in Arlington National Cemetery. Sandry thinks people don't want to be reminded of the human cost of the global war on terror, that death is an uncomfortable subject. So to me, the importance of this monument being constructed is that all Americans realize and remember what we've asked these young men and women to do for the last 20 years. Whether it be to educate the public, gather with fellow veterans, or remember loved ones, many here say they look forward to the day when they can march as a group to the memorial itself. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. When we come back, sharing the stories of DACA recipients in their own words. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado Public Radio is proud to sponsor TEDx Mile High, presenting Colorado's thinkers and doers, sharing life-changing ideas on the theme, Ascend. Explore big ideas taking flight across science, technology, the arts, education, business, April 30th at the Newman Center for the Performing Arts at the University of Denver. Tickets available now at TEDxMileHigh.com. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. DACA is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. It gave children brought to the U.S. from other countries temporary protection from deportation, and it made them eligible for college and jobs. Leading up to a June anniversary, we're going to share monologues written by DACA recipients. They're part of a podcast series from Boulder-based Modus Theater. In some cases, they'll be read by the authors themselves, in other cases by prominent voices, which is the case today with actor John Lithgow. He presents the story of Irving Ressa of Denver. Ressa uses humor to capture the stress he faces each time he goes through an immigrant tech checkpoint. The piece is called The Most Beautiful Monument. On an annual basis, I go to El Paso, Texas to see my grandmother. My problem is not that I must go to El Paso. It's when I return home to Colorado, I have to pass through an immigration checkpoint. The U.S. has CBP checkpoints, usually within 100 miles from the border. CBP stands for Customs and Border Protection. Everyone calls them the Border Patrol, but the agents don't like that. They're really sensitive people. The name Border Patrol hurts their feelings. Sometimes when you're stopped, they want to search your vehicle. It all depends on the agent and the time of day. If you have too much luggage, that might be suspicious, as you could be trying to smuggle something. If you are carrying a reasonable amount of stuff, that might be suspicious, since you could be trying to pass off as a normal traveler. If you're traveling without luggage, that too might be suspicious, since you could be traveling in a hurry. Don't make me talk about passengers. That might be suspicious. One night, when I was heading to Denver after passing through Las Cruces, I stopped at the checkpoint and gave them my EAD, my 
DACA employment authorization document. The officer asked me where I was going. Me, to Denver. Officer, why are you going there? I live there. How long were you in El Paso? I actually started to count the days. If I arrived on Friday night, and today is Thursday night, does that count as a full day? The officer wasn't really interested in my answer. He just wanted reason to search the trunk of my car. I felt that I had no choice. I said, yes. I pressed the button on my 2004 Cavalier to open the trunk. It being a junker with 200,000 miles, the trunk door opens, but it doesn't pop up. It has to be lifted up every time. Opening it with a key is quite the puzzle. A really old car. The officer asked again, please open the trunk. It is open. You just have to lift it. I imagined the officer thinking, oh, this is too much trouble. Sir, get out of the car. We're going to use the search dogs. I got out and waited there in the open. It was pitch black, except the areas surrounded by the floodlights. It was also dead silent. I could see where the light ended and where the void began. Although I couldn't see anything in the dark, I knew there were hidden shrubs, sand, critters, and immigration. I waited under the watchful eye and close surveillance of five officers, <laughs> as if I was capable of beating them up and making a dramatic escape. I waited in a resting stance, slightly bent knees, hands on my waist, relaxed elbows, steady breathing, and looking at them without looking at them. Otherwise, I could learn how many immigration officers it takes to screw a Mexican. The officer with the search dog asked me out loud, does the passenger door open? Yes, you just have to unlock it from the inside. Cavalier 2004, manual lock, rolling windows, busted dashboard, $1,500. The officer told me that I could get going. He then asked, your trunk closes, right? Yeah. After that experience, I always wonder as I approach a checkpoint if they're going to search my car. Sometimes they just take my ID and that's it. Other times they don't even stop anyone and I keep on going. Officer one, are we gonna stop anyone today, dude? Officer two, nah, I just really don't feel like it. Last year, after going to El Paso, I decided to visit White Sands National Monument. I made a right turn in Las Cruces and drove until I reached the checkpoint. I always have my ID ready and I, I gave it to the officer. Officer, where are you coming from? Me, from El Paso. Where are you going? To the monument. Why are you going there? to see the monument. Can I search your car? When she asked to search my car, I remembered a conversation that I had with Victor Galvan, who leads immigrant rights trainings. I told him about my previous experience, 
He asked me why I let them search my car. Uh, I don't know. He told me to exercise my rights the next time I passed through a checkpoint. So in response to the officer's question, I said no. The officer took a step back and went to talk to her supervisor. I usually don't look at them if I'm not talking to them since I don't want to look mean at them. The officer came back and asked me if they could search my trunk. Is it truly necessary? Just answer the question, sir. No. The officer went back to talk with her supervisor. I assume they did not really expect that kind of response. I imagined their conversation. Officer, he said no to searching the car. What do I do now? It's not supposed to be this way, supervisor. Okay, what if you ask him again and see if he flinches this time? Sir, I asked him again and he said no again. Well, I, um, we can impound his car and search it later. A cavalier. We have standards here. Let him go. I was permitted to move on. And in a few miles, I reached the monument. Once I got to the monument, I went to their checkpoint. The attendant said, welcome to White Sands National Monument. Would you like a day pass or a season pass? I'll take the day pass. Thank you. Here is a map and your car sticker. Enjoy your stay. When I'm at a CBP checkpoint, I always figure that they will stop me, search me, and shake me up a bit. I've not heard of any DACA recipient being arrested or beaten at a checkpoint, which doesn't mean that it hasn't happened and that I won't be the one it happens to. But if the agents think either I or my car look suspicious, that could be it for me, whether I'm guilty or not. Even spending a single day in detention could mean losing my DACA status, and that would be a disaster. But that day, near Las Cruces, 50 miles from the Mexican border, I was stopped at a checkpoint, and I exercised my rights. And my rights, as written in the Constitution, were respected. For many Americans, the Constitution is something they might take for granted. But that day, when my rights were respected and the Bill of Rights was honored, I experienced the most beautiful national monument America has ever created. Actor John Lithgow reading a monologue written by Irving Ressa, a DACA recipient in Denver. The monologue is part of the Undocu America project from Boulder-based Modus Theater. You can watch Irving Reza read his own story live on stage at the Dairy Arts Center in Boulder, Saturday, June 11th. The readings are also compiled as a podcast. We'll put a link at cpr.org slash Colorado Matters. And by the way, each reading on the podcast is followed by music. For Reza's story, it's Rainbow of Colors, by the legendary Neil Young, who lives near Telluride. There's a rainbow of colors. 
is Colorado Matters for today with thanks to our team Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton Pete Kramer Andrea Dukakis Michelle Fulcher Nathan Heffel Matt Hers, Michael Hughes Carla Jimenez Pedro Lumbrano Patrice Mondragon Shane Rumsey And I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. You're with CPR News and KRCC In the old No one's gonna